I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Dr. Catherine Zahn. Catherine is the CEO of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, in Toronto, uh, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, maybe, um, psychiatric facilities in North America. Uh, we had a really interesting conversation. I've been wanting to talk to Catherine for a long time because uh, while I've worked in the community mental health sector for the Canadian Mental Health Association for ages, uh, we worked with people in hospital all the time. Uh, so I've always been struck by this and have experienced myself this um, duality of sorts between recovery in the community, recovery in real life and, and all of the complications of that versus the treatment that you get while you're in hospital. I was an inpatient on psychiatric wards at least seven times. Uh, so I got to see that you know, pretty intimately. Um, and then having worked with, with many patients as well at, at CAMH. So I think we had a, a really interesting conversation about that, about where recovery happens, about the role of, uh, the psychiatric hospital in recovery. Uh, and we do get into NCR, not criminally responsible. You know, CAMH has had uh, a number of people that have that have made the media who have been found not criminally responsible, uh, who have been uh, released on pass, as is part of the part of the system, uh, a system that generally works, and who have absconded, who have who haven't come back or were found later, uh, uh, who tried to abscond. So we had a, a really interesting, I think, conversation about that and the implications that that uh, that will have potentially on people's care in the future. Uh, so listen to our, our talk. I, I, she was a, a really interesting, um, uh, compassionate, uh, great person. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Catherine Zahn. So here it is on So-Called Normal. So Catherine, thank you for coming in. Um, as I ask everybody, especially I think people who are uh, prominent, and you are prominent in the city of Toronto as the uh, CEO of the largest uh, psychiatric hospital, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, in Canada for sure, uh, I would assume, uh, but likely uh, one of the largest in, in the world. Um, we'll get to that, but first, tell me about yourself. Hmm, where would you like me to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, why do, why do you do so, what you do? Why, what's your interest in mental health? You're a neurologist by I'm, training? I'm, I'm a neurologist by training, and uh, I've actually worked in healthcare since I was a teenager. Really? Uh, my first job was as a nurse's aide in my uh, local small town uh, community hospital. Okay, in Ontario? Uh, in uh, small town central, north central Ontario. I'm uh, okay. sorry, in small town, north central Ohio. Ohio, okay. Ohio, You've been in right. Ontario for so I've long that it's programmed. I've been in Ontario for so long it's, yeah. uh, it, it's programmed. <laughs> so uh, so I actually never left healthcare. Interesting. And uh, um, uh, why that is, I'm not 100% sure. I'm committed yeah. to taking care of things, taking care of people. I'm the oldest of six children and uh, um, and uh, it's, it's kind of built into my yeah. brain to take care of business. I tell people sometimes too, because I've only ever really done mental health, and that's, I guess, uh, interesting enough, but it's also because I don't know how to do anything else. Mm -hmm. I, I have no other transferable skills. <laughs> so once you find what you're passionate about, why not double down on it, right? Exactly. So well, part, part of the story of what I'm doing now is is uh, is uh, related to the fact that I'm originally from Ohio. Yeah. Uh, my husband and I came to Canada shortly after we were married many, many, many years ago. Okay. And uh, we came because he had a scholarship, and we meant to stay for 
for just the one year, mm-hmm. and uh, a number of fortunate circumstances ensued, and we ended up uh, ended up staying. and yeah. And we really liked coming to what was then uh, a modest sized city, but to us, coming from small town America, it was sure. it was it was quite big. We we liked that idea of being anonymous and yeah. being able to reinvent ourselves. And uh, uh, we were both uh, both studying at the at the yeah. time. And you uh, were did you come here and practice as a neurologist, or did that come later? That came that came uh, that came much later. Much I finished, later. Okay. Uh, I finished. Uh, University and then went to medical school here, yeah. and uh, we were we felt just fine. Thank you very much in uh, in in Toronto until we had children, right. and then we we felt a significant loss of family. As sure. I mentioned, I'm from a, a very big family, and I missed the uh, uh, idea of having my mother or my yeah. sisters here to support us. How big is your family? I have five brothers and sisters. Five brothers and sisters. Yeah. Okay, so I my mother was one of. Uh, 17. Oh, <laughs> so when people my say gosh. big, and my father was one of 15, so uh, 30 plus aunts and uncles. So when I hear people say big family, I'm always yeah. very interested in what they mean by yeah. big family. Yeah. That's yeah. that's that's significantly more, yeah. although, although I do have, uh, I'm from a, a first cousinship of uh, nearly 40. 40. So yeah. it's, wow. uh, there, there are, there are a lot of, sure. of people who, uh, who, who I loved and who loved yeah. me. And, and are they all still mostly in the Ohio area or spread out everywhere? I would say now? most are, but yeah. but certainly there's a uh, there's a big spread as there are with with my siblings. Yeah. But uh, uh, but at the time, then I was uh, I was a practicing a neurologist, mm-hmm. and uh, it occurred to me that I I might not be comfortable practicing uh, medicine in the United States. Mm. And uh, but I did have an idea. I thought that if I had uh, uh, experience in a in a healthcare system that has a, um, a, a national healthcare system and uh, uh, a credential mm-hmm. that uh, perhaps I could work for government sure. or, or do something that would be uh, be valuable and, and, and appealing uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. And uh, so I did a master's in health administration. Okay. And uh, 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 when you do something like that, you signal to the people around you a certain interest and uh, uh, a desire to do something different or uh, yeah. uh, more expansive. And uh, and I began to get uh, get um, uh, requests to take on leadership positions, mm-hmm. which uh, started small and then uh, and then became larger. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I stayed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, how long have you been in Canada now? Since the early seventies. Early seventies. Okay. Most wow. of my life has been uh, has, yeah, has, yeah. has been in Canada. But do you still remember, especially you know, you had exposure to healthcare in the United States. You said you didn't really want to practice uh, healthcare there. So, do you still remember the uh, transition period? I guess of getting used to a uh, Canadian-style healthcare system. I mean, we're not fully single-payer universal healthcare of of other places, but it's still very different than the United States, right? Well, it's a little bit of a tricky question to answer mm. because uh, as a child, again, in a small town, we had a family doctor who was very much Marcus Welby-like. What does that mean? Uh, he made house calls. Okay. <laughs> uh, he was um, he was a, a, a prominent citizen in sure. this in this small town, uh, uh, very highly regarded, very kind, very available. Mm. Uh, f- everything from uh, um, you know taking care of uh, he was a surgeon from mm-hmm. from uh, uh, doing surgery to delivering babies to <laughs> uh, to don't laugh but. Um, Piercing my ears. He pierced your ears. <laughs> you couldn't go to Walgreens then. I, or, no, no. And I, and I paid. I remember paying him five dollars, which was a lot of money <laughs> at the time. Well, so, he, so it sounds like he had a, a 
a big impact on you. He, as a young he, he did. He did. He would have been my only role model for uh, uh, for, for for medicine. Right. Uh, so that's quite different than the uh, situation then in the in the um, I guess it would have been in the eighties when when we were uh, imagining that we needed to, to go back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, I mean I have I have friends and family who do practice medicine in mm-hmm. in the U.S. The issue with multiple payers, the um, restrictions, the uh, the concerns about uh, uh, about uh, um, how how you practice and mm-hmm. what restraints are, are are put on you uh, just seemed extremely burdensome and mm-hmm. and against my personal philosophy that um, that healthcare is uh, right, mm-hmm. not a commodity to be bought right, and sold. Right, and that's still I think maybe even more so now than then a mm-hmm. controversial stance. Mm-hmm. You know that that mm-hmm. healthcare is a right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you? Where do you see that, or how have you seen that seen that evolve in Canada from the seventies uh, until now? Uh, I, I think only in a positive direction, mm. in, in in my opinion, mm. that uh, uh, that that idea. Especially, so you, so especially you're glad you stayed here. Then. I, I'm very yeah. glad. I, I'm <laughs> a, a positive position from the from the Canadian perspective. Yeah. Uh, I uh, um, I I think it's more difficult now. Than previously to practice medicine in the U.S. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned, I have uh, I have friends and family who uh, are very very burdened by the multiple insurers, the sure. uh, uh, the the um, burden of of documentation that seems irrelevant at times. So mm-hmm. this, there there are there are many many uh, reasons why I'm I'm happy to be yeah. uh, to be practicing here. Well, I think it's a Canadian pastime in some ways to complain about waiting in the emergency room or something like that, or complaining about our healthcare system, yes. but. It might be one of those uh, you get used to it and you don't realize how good we have it here in Canada. It's not without faults, sure. and I do think that we have opportunities to improve. And uh, and and I think I think those of us who work in the system and those of us who have have a voice or have a leadership position are are, are anxious to participate in positive change. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where did the, your interest in mental health uh, come along? You know, now being the head of of a large mental health facility. Um, the connection for people within uh, the uh, mental health system between neurology and mental health is pretty clear, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. it's as clear to everybody. Mm-hmm, so where mm-hmm. did that come up for you? So uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm a, a neurologist by trade, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, my specialty actually was epilepsy. Okay. So um, I'm very familiar with people whose illness uh, uh, can produce changes in the way intermittently that they, that they think or they behave mm-hmm. that can be uh, 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 frightening to the mm-hmm. general public and and uh, my patients also were the subject of of uh, stigma or mm-hmm. prejudice and discrimination uh, uh, against them because of uh, of their illness. So very patients very, with epilepsy. Yes, very very deeply attuned to that. Uh, so the so the um, uh, the. Uh, uh, the practice of neurology includes many conditions like mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. uh, the change you're thinking in your behavior those are always and and remain mysterious and perhaps a little bit frightening to the mm-hmm. uh, to the general public mm-hmm. uh, and and for a long time it's, it has been my my hope to dispel those fears and, sure. and uh, to, to help uh, uh, the people that have been my individual patients but also uh, uh, the patients of the people that I've been able to support yeah. uh, to, uh, to to advance that cause so not a very big leap no. uh, yeah. to uh, to move into mental health but uh, but intervening or in the there, there's a interval mm-hmm. in between when I was uh, practicing neurologists and then I took on leadership 
positions. Uh, uh, my previous uh, um, uh, job was at the University Health Network, where mm-hmm. I held uh, a series of leadership positions as the head of the Division of Neurology, then the Neuroscience Program. And uh, my last position there was as the executive vice president in charge of all of the clinical programs. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I became more general in mm-hmm. my approach to mm-hmm. healthcare. And when the um, opportunity to look at CAMH, the CEO position, came up, uh, uh, um, it was very intriguing. And the, mm-hmm. the person who approached me was Paul Beeston, who okay. was then the board chair at, uh, at, at, at CAMH. And, uh, and, and I remember questioning him as to why I would leave this gigantic job I have mm-hmm. to a position that, that on the surface of it, by, by common metrics of the number of patients, the number of staff, the expense budget, mm-hmm. was, uh, was smaller. He pointed out to me that uh, the position at CAMH was not just running a hospital. Mm-hmm. It was an opportunity at the uh, at, at an inflection point in the mental health yes. movement to be part of the movement and to lead an organization that could carry that movement forward yeah, on their yeah. shoulders. And how long have you been CEO of CAMH now? I'm coming up to my 10th anniversary. Co- oh, congratulations. December 1st. Congratulations. When you mentioned your work in um, epilepsy, I was a bit surprised to hear you talk about uh, the stigma of it. Now, I don't have a lot of uh, personal work in that area. My mother had epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. She died of epilepsy, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, of of SUDEP. Um, But I was not very aware of the stigma that existed there. Is Mm -hmm. there still stigma, as you see it, in epilepsy? Or was there a successful effort uh, to reduce that stigma such to the degree that I don't really know that much about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know what, I, I'm a little removed from that right mm-hmm. now, but I think that the simple answer is yes, because you will see, uh, um, you will see uh, uh, fundraising events. You'll mm-hmm. see, you'll see um, purple ribbon uh, events that are uh, are um, uh, uh, bringing to the forefront the uh, uh, the the nature of the mm-hmm. of the condition. And mm-hmm. I think I think it's. Um, I think it's the case that when we have more information about what the what the biological causes are, what the actual impact of the illness is mm-hmm. uh, uh, on day to day living, and it's it's intervals. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a spectrum. Some people have have easy to control and uh, and, and and manage uh, seizure disorders. Others have have much more difficult that are associated with other uh, uh, other problems. So there there is that spectrum. But but once we once we gain an understanding of these causes uh, and uh, and and approaches to them, there there um, there is a there's a lifting off of this sure. darkness and and, yeah. and and shadow surrounding it. So I yeah. so I do think that there's an evolution. Uh, not only not only for epilepsy, <clears throat> excuse me, but also uh, for other uh, sure. other neurologic conditions. Well, and this is exactly why I, why I was asking the question because is that a um, roadmap of sorts for what we're trying to do? And I think in some degree, to a large degree, have successfully started to do in mental health, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you've seen it over the last ten years as well. Um, has that stigma started to come down when we educate people more about the the neurological basis of mental illness? Yeah. Yes and no. The starting point for me is is that there have been two significant changes, a change in assumptions and a change in facts. So the mm. change 
an assumption is that uh, people with mental illness can recover. Right. So we've gone from the idea of resignation to recovery. Right. Uh, that, that you don't just have to, it's not a death sentence. You don't have to necessarily live with this for the rest of your life. Or even if you do, you don't necessarily have to suffer with it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 then the corollary to that is the, the, the change in fact is that we're, although our knowledge is imperfect, we have a much greater understanding of the complex interplay between our biology and our environment mm-hmm. that is uh, uh, is is related to uh, is, is related to mental to the origins of mental illness and the perpetuation mm-hmm. of, of mental illness. So that leads uh, to the idea that there can be interventions that right. uh, that, that can be effective, uh, and that has moved us from the idea of institutionalization to reintegration into right. society. And this really seems to reflect, I think, uh, one of the most significant movements in our understanding of mental health now, that one of the biggest trends in the 90s and, the, and through the 2000s was this idea of the chemical imbalance, that we just need to rebalance the chemicals in your brain, and then you won't have depression anymore, or schizophrenia, or bipolar mm-hmm. disorder, or whatever. It turns out there wasn't a lot of evidence for that to begin with, uh, that it was in part uh, associated with um, uh, pharmaceutical marketing. Uh, but now it seems that we've moved on to this epigenetic approach, that this interface between, yes, maybe you have a, a gene that predisposes you to a mental illness, but whether or not it gets turned on, uh, and there are a lot of other factors associated with whether or not you'll actually experience that illness. Because I think that there is some, I hear this from people on the ground all the time, uh, some stigma associated with the idea that your brain is broken and therefore you need to go to a hospital or see a doctor to fix your broken brain. It's not always that. <laughs> it's rarely that simple, right? It's not simple. And uh, and, and certainly uh, chemicals or neurotransmitters sure. are, are important, but so is neural connectivity. Right. Uh, what what uh, How one part of the brain talks to another part, yeah. how those uh, neuroplasticity, how uh, how those connections become formed, become become dysfunctional, become right. undone and, and redone through various types of, of, uh, of, of, of therapy. And then the the uh, the other layer I would put on this is that it's uh, the case with many other uh, complex chronic conditions that there is a uh, an interesting interplay between environment and uh, and uh, bio- in biology. Mm-hmm. So uh, we know how important, uh, uh, for example, early childhood trauma or deprivation of any mm-hmm. sort is. Uh, we know that that um, people. In uh, lower socioeconomic uh, groups, uh, are are um, uh, much more vulnerable not mm-hmm. only to mental illness but also to diabetes, mm-hmm. to cancer. Sure. So it's so it's it's uh, it, it is very very complicated. With respect to um, uh, the idea of stigma or the the, the representation of, of of mental illness uh, being being negative, uh, I think I think that has changed somewhat. But um, it, but not but not enough. Right. And uh, I think that it's primarily true for people, for example, that have depression, mm-hmm. uh, but not so much for people whose illnesses produce psychosis. I've noticed this too that that it's very popular now, especially with celebrity participation, to talk about seeing a therapist, for example, or taking mm-hmm. even antidepressants. Mm-hmm. But we're still very afraid of people who are who are who have schizophrenia or, or experience psychosis in many ways. And I'll go back to the the earlier comment that I made was, which was that that. Um, uh, 
individuals, because we don't know enough about the brain yet, mm-hmm. individuals who have any condition that changes the way we think or mm-hmm. behave uh, remain confusing and, mm-hmm. and fearful to the general public. Mm-hmm. And they're subject to prejudice and discrimination. Mm-hmm. The approach that I advocate for uh, uh, combating prejudice is, is, is the common one that, uh, that has been tried and true, I believe, is, mm. is education and uh, familiarity. Right. If uh, uh, the more we know about these conditions, uh, uh, the more that we see people not only in their extremely ill phase, but when they've recovered, right. uh, the more that we can combat that yeah. prejudice. And there's a researcher out at uh, Queen's University, you probably know Dr. Heather Stewart, uh, mm-hmm. talks a lot about the idea of contact-based education as well, that sometimes our knowledge, we can have all the knowledge that we want, but it doesn't always translate to behavior change. Mm-hmm. That people know things that are bad for them and do them anyway all the time, yes. and vice versa, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then how do we actually make that jump? Great, we're educating people. We're making people aware uh, this idea of actually, okay, we'll meet this person who has psychosis and look they're not killing you <laughs> it can be one of the most powerful ways to break down that ridiculous stigma that people with psychosis are violent by their nature you know we hear this all the time despite the fact that it's not supported by the data so so then how do we do that more effectively how do we reintegrate more effectively and and show people that look these stigmas these things that you believe about mental illnesses are not correct uh, well, there are a number. There are a number of uh, programs that are that are in place to bring that level of familiarity to the general public. Uh, we're particularly proud of one at, at CAMH where uh, our our trainees, our residents, our, our physician uh, trainees uh, are uh, in a program where they actually interact with patients and the and the and the patients uh, uh, behave as as, as teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's so right. important for us as as as, um, as physicians, as nurses, as uh, social workers, caregivers, to see the entire spectrum of an illness and yeah. to see that person who has recovered see the real them that isn't the representation of yes. their illness well very often healthcare providers I mean you people don't typically come to see you when they're doing great when they're doing super well that's you know right. they come to see you when they're struggling that's right now we, we've often heard that though people who are struggling one of the areas where they experience the most stigma or where they feel the most objectified is within the healthcare system yes right this has been mm-hmm. shown in survey after survey so how do you address that you know it sounds like one of these initiatives is exposing your professionals to people who are mm-hmm. uh, who are dealing with it. And this, there's there's so much work to be done. And mm-hmm. the the uh, uh, the 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 visual, I think you can you can you can imagine someone who is is uh, is um, acting in a way that's frightening to those mm-hmm. around them. Uh, there are a number of reasons that you have that behavior. Sure, behavior is uh, information. And and, right. and 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 we we don't necessarily step back and. Uh, 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 and and respond in the most human and humane way. Mm-hmm. I have an anecdote from my early years as a uh, as an intern in the emergency department. I'd love and, to hear uh, it. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I remember a patient came in very um, uh, combative, mm-hmm. uh, and you could not communicate with her. And uh, um, I uh, uh, was very very fresh as an intern, and, and uh, one of the senior nurses was 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 with me. And I said, "Well, we need to." Take some blood. We need to do this, and we need to do that. And and the nurse uh, said, um, "I know this patient. She's diabetic, and she's hypoglycemic. Mm. Let me give her some glucose." And I started to argue and say, "Well, that will ruin the blood work." And she right. goes, "Catherine." Let me give her the glucose, and I will um, take the blood afterwards if I'm wrong. Mm. And uh, and there are a whole bunch of things uh, to say about that, that hierarchy that she had to say, let me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
despite the fact she that she knew the patient the expert, better. Yeah, yeah. And she knew exactly what to do, and right. she she treated the, uh, the 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 patient who then woke up and said, "Oh, oh my God, I don't know mm-hmm. what happened to me." And she was perfectly fine. So it's it's that it's learning, right? right. It's having that that type of experience, and having coaches next to you, people who are experienced and uh, and, and adept, yeah. and have have that extra thing, not 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 just the rules, right? Yeah, not yeah. The, I was going by the rules. Okay, you you quick examine the patient, sure. you do the blood work, you do whatever tests you need, and then you make a diagnosis yeah. and then you treat and she she had the additional um, uh, texture of this patient yeah. she had the pattern recognition that she was able to respond in a tenth of the time yeah I had that I was um, able to I previously had dr. Brian Goldman on the show from CBC's white coat mm-hmm. black art and he's very well known he did a TED talk he's written books yes. about it mm-hmm. uh, the idea of, of culture in medicine and you mentioned the hierarchy as well uh, the the practice sometimes of, of not being able to admit when you don't know something, or mm-hmm. you might even be wrong mm-hmm. for legal reasons, for professional credibility reasons, all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons. Um, have you experienced that yourself as a physician and now on the on the uh, executive end of things? And how do you how do you actually break that down? That culture which says that it's not okay if you don't know something to ask for help. Well, the first thing I do is I try to role model it, sure, <laughs> and sure. Uh, uh, and and I think that this is sometimes referred to as the as the. Uh, uh, the hidden curriculum in, right. in in medical school. You have to uncover it. You have to make it uh, make it make it uh, explicit and uh, and um, have those conversations. I think that's this that that hidden curriculum is part of the angst of of healthcare providers today. That uh, yeah. uh, that um, there's a there's there's an evolution in the the status of healthcare, the status of uh, physicians in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, uh, that that demands that we that we address that that culture yeah yeah now what would you tell a new doctor or or somebody just getting into medicine uh about that culture uh you know how would you tell them what would be your advice for how they can deal with it themselves coming into it i would talk to them about their values their Mm. core values and and uh encourage them to understand humility as 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 being a uh uh, an important value to hold dear as a as a new physician and as and to carry that through your entire uh your your entire career Right. Uh, to to understand that the people for whom you provide care are are valuable human beings with yeah. with rights, with human rights and civil rights and healthcare rights that uh, deserve your uh, uh, that deserve yeah. your respect. I think it's sorry. I think it's um, in part. What- a, a workplace mental health issue. It's a way of being more efficient to categorize people, right? Mm-hmm. And, to, and especially uh, people who use the healthcare system a lot. They tend to experience mm-hmm. more stigma than just about anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I experienced that when I was a teenager and became the so-called frequent flyer in and out of, you know, through the revolving door so many mm-hmm. times that by the, by one of my last discharges, they wrote in the notes, we're just going to leave Mark's file open because he's probably going to be back. Oh. They, they didn't even, you know, so, so that tells me, though, and the reason why I use that example is that People who the more help they need, it seems like the less help they get because others just start to categorize and to say, no, they're just here to abuse the system or whatever it might be. Maybe the issue is that their needs aren't being met the way that they, that they need. So that's, how do how do you so that's so the, so that's the that's that thinking um, uh, to combat that thinking is really the origin of of people or person or patient centered uh, patient centered care. What right. is the uh, uh, what is that need? Step back and try to wipe away your uh, right. your preconceived notions. Well, and that's also I, good science too, right? It is. 
I, it is, but there's something a little bit more specific about it. Uh, when I when I finished my residency, I have very very. Uh, good colleague and, and close friend. And uh, I remember us talking about this and, and thinking of what our antidote would be. And mm-hmm. he said, uh, he said, uh, should pledge to yourself that idea that every time you uh, are faced with a human being who, uh, who, who, who needs your help, you should try to find out one special thing about them. Interesting. That's not about the situation here. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, you know, again, that's served me very, very well. I try to pass that on to the in the, in the olden days when I was tra- when I was uh, teaching right. and 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 uh, responsible for tra- for for trainees to uh, to help them to help them humanize and continue to humanize yeah. themselves and the people that they're serving. That seems to be a, a very prevalent theme in the evolution of CAMH as an institution as well. Can you talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about the history uh, of, of, I mean, a, a building that was at once called, uh, was it the Toronto Lunatic, Lunatic Asylum or something to that effect, uh, as many mental health facilities were? Uh, I have a, a map on my wall in mm-hmm. my office that I, I keep there to remind me, and, and it's from 1910, mm-hmm. which is about 60, 50, 60 years after the original building was built, and it's it's labeled the Provincial Lunatic Asylum. Provincial Lunatic Asylum, the yeah. Provincial Lunatic Asylum, and it's, uh, it, by 1910, there was a significant uh, residential area uh, around the, um, the asylum, mm-hmm. uh, probably in response to the industrial lands below the railroad tracks, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yet there was a wall around the the, um, uh, around the asylum, uh, and when you look at the map, when I look at the map, uh, I imagine it. I'm a science fiction fan. Mm. I imagine it as some sort of a force field right. that, that 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 has that for many many years kept yeah. things at bay, kept uh, kept um, a, a wrap on or a constriction on the patients. Right. Um, and I had but, heard. I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe you can tell me if that that wall was built by patients. That ball, that wall was built by patients, yeah, wow. and the, there's lots of discussion surrounding that uh, um, whether they were coerced, sure. or whether this was was in 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 essence forced labor. Right. Well, that they uh, built the walls that confined them. That, that confined them. That's wow. what's this, there's a horrifying irony around that. Yeah. Uh, it was also during a period of time when ideas similar to what we would think of as occupational therapy were extant. Mm-hmm. It's hard to it, it's hard to be black and white about sure. that. But, but the wall is still there. Problem. You've kept parts of it in the redevelopment. Yes. Uh, the the, um, the southeast and west walls are largely uh, intact and they will be. They, yeah. will, they will be uh, will, will be maintained as uh, uh, I think a, an important reminder of That's the origins of reminder. the uh, of the um, in, the institution, the um, uh, uh, the ability to cause reflection mm-hmm. on what's gone before and what the future represents. Mm-hmm. So that uh, facility, which was built in the 1850s, uh, um, was um, uh, one of the four organizations that, in the late 1990s, uh, as mandate of the restructuring commission were were brought together to form CAMH. Right. So there was the then Queen Street Mental Health Center, the Clark Institute, which was part of uh, the university hosp- hospital system, the mm-hmm. Addiction Research Foundation, which was a agency of government, and then the Donwood facility, which was uh, a um, rehabilitation facility for alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 so CAMH is what 21, 22 years old yeah. in its in in, in, in its, its current, current form, form. Yeah. and that um, that that bringing together I think coincided with a, a well developed recovery uh, mm. uh, 
ideology surrounding uh, surrounding um, right. surrounding mental health with the involvement of, of patients themselves and through the empowerment council I believe right? yes at the very at the very beginning the empowerment council and family council were, were part of the um, uh, part of the uh, original um, behaviors of the uh, of, of the merger and that's yeah. been that's been uh, uh, those have been really really valuable structures yeah. uh, in the organization so uh, uh, so w- what's happened I think is is it's exciting to to uh, uh, compare it to the redevelopment that's going on so yeah. so, so as as um, as I've been uh, at CAMH for 10 years my predecessor uh, dr. Paul Garfinkel was was responsible for uh, creating the vision of the redevelopment which mm-hmm. we've we've been able to push forward um, uh, and we're undergoing construction right now mm-hmm. of, two, of, of two large buildings uh, that uh, are really uh, reflecting the changes within the organization of how we're organizing our programs, not by uh, 19th century diagnosis right. or how you get into the hospital or your demographic, but how how people, how human beings see their needs and and their care so so m- much more uh, cohesive in, in in coherent ways into the organization mm-hmm. it's not perfect but uh, sure. but but sure. driving towards uh, impro- improvement well and even and, the community around CAMH has really developed significantly I mean it used it to has. be a threat to send people down to 999 right but now it's actually quite a trendy community around that area yeah it's a it's a very vibrant and yeah. exciting arts and design community that um, that have been wonderful yeah. uh, to, to, to work with uh, as we're undergoing the redevelopment. So that, that redevelopment is a physical representation of all of the things that uh, are changing and are mm-hmm. happening uh, mm-hmm. uh, within the world of, of mental health. On the out, so all of this redevelopment happening on the outside, which is, which is wonderful, has, though there have been redevelopment on the inside in terms of the architecture and the environmental design yes. uh, in which mm-hmm. patients are getting care. Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, uh, all of the the new buildings have been designed with that very uh, uh, that very thought in mind, with a mm-hmm. significant amount of input from uh, uh, from um, from staff, patients, families, mm-hmm. uh, to understand what can be the best environment to uh, uh, support recovery, mm-hmm. uh, and as well to support um, uh, to support support safety of of of, of patients and mm-hmm. staff. Mm-hmm. A, a simple example of that. Is the um, are, are, is the uh, is the example of the two buildings that are currently uh, under construction? One right now we refer to as the crisis and critical care building, mm-hmm. and the other we refer to compl- as complex care and mm-hmm. uh, and and recovery. So uh, so the physicality of the uh, crisis and critical care. Well, there's obviously there's an emergency department, uh, but also the the care and therapy of people who are acutely ill takes place close to them. Right. They don't have to move around. So we have the, the, the therapy opportunities uh, adjacent to, to um, where, the, um, where the inpatient beds are. Mm-hmm. In contrast, in complex care and recovery, we're trying to, to uh, support people to prepare them to resume uh, their life with their community, with their family, with right. their work. And so the therapeutic spaces are removed, so they have to they, they have to go to another area or uh, or, or move about with increasing levels of or, right. of, uh, of of freedom right. to uh, um, to become familiar with the ways that they'll return to society. Sure. Well, and this is I think this is a really important point because um, not a lot of people realize that while recovery might be triggered by or even start in hospital or, or or the conditions for recovery might be started in hospital, I've never met anybody, and it didn't it wasn't the case for me, so maybe it's only anecdotal. But I've never met anybody who's actually recovered from their mental illness while being in hospital. That's right. Right. Yeah. That it, it might kickstart it, but it doesn't happen there. Well, it's it's a very very 
small epoch in the life of an individual who lives with uh, lives with uh, a mental disorder and so you're absolutely right only only a piece of it can happen in hospital so we depend greatly on our our partners in the uh, in in the community to uh, to uh, interact with us to um, increasingly uh, develop uh, better ways to communicate with one another mm-hmm. to ensure that we're there for each other mm-hmm. uh, to, to really support uh, the long-term recovery yeah. of our patients. Now, CAMH has been in the news a lot lately uh, for the idea of uh, in reintegrating people back into communities for day passes mm-hmm. uh, and for security reasons. There have been a number of people found not criminally responsible, uh, which is a, a, a finding a process that works uh, for both public safety and rehabilitating people. However, we're still in a situation where there's a lot of stigma uh, around mental illness and the uh, misconception that people with mental illnesses are violent or even that they're likely to reoffend. So now people who have been on day passes as part of your regular programming have not come back uh, and it's happened several times. I understand that you're reviewing this and, and working to potentially make changes. Can you talk more about this whole situation? Mm-hmm. So to to start with, CAMH is as part of the mental health system. Mm-hmm. So we are uh, uh, part of a network of of uh, community primary care in inpatient services that uh, uh, that support the recovery of all people with mental illness. Right. We also have a, uh, a forensic mental health uh, service that is responsible for uh, uh, caring for people whose illness has caused them to become involved with the criminal justice right. system. Right. Uh, those people are uh, found most of them are are uh, in a category called not criminally responsible right. which means which is determined by a judge by a which potentially is, a jury that's 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 correct okay. that's uh, that that essentially means that uh, that uh, their activity was carried out as part of their illness so their right. their their activity was a product of their uh, mental illness sure. and, if you believe that you're being attacked by the devil or by aliens you're yeah, going to react yeah. in a certain yeah. way yeah there's the, the 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 test is did you understand what you were doing right and that you were doing it and uh, did you understand that it was wrong right and if uh, the answer to those two is yes uh, then you're referred to as not criminally responsible, mm-hmm. and your disposition is uh, governed by the by a provincial board uh, mm-hmm. in Ontario. Obviously, that's the uh, um, Ontario Review Board mm-hmm. that uh, um, that um, uh, then uh, um, sends an individual to a mental health facility such as CAMH for their care, mm-hmm. and the process during their their uh, the stay at CAMH is uh, one of of, um, of of treatments, mm-hmm. supports, uh, restriction of of uh, liberty. Sure. Uh, that uh, that that is um, again subject to some overarching rules and disposition by the uh, Ontario Review Board, uh, but it also includes uh, the opportunity to have graded. Um, uh, liberties, mm-hmm. and uh, those are, are subject to a number of tests, and uh, and by and large, we do quite well mm-hmm. uh, in a large number of of, uh, of patients. Some uh, 
some are deemed to have not uh, obeyed the the, sure. the rules that are that are that are put around them. So, for example, they they come back late, right. uh, or they're brought or they're brought back late. Uh, they or they don't or come they back don't because come they because right. they because they don't want to come back. And we have we have processes surrounding that, mm-hmm. and uh, and that that then has consequences uh, that has consequences for them. But um, but but the uh, forensic mental health system is is actually quite successful right. in rehabilitating people and uh, I think you're probably familiar with the statistics that uh, uh, that that people who have uh, uh, have um, been found to be non, not criminally responsible, who are under the care of a, a, a psychiatric facility, have a recidivism rate that's that's much much lower than that of of individuals yes. who have committed uh, offenses, and are in the criminal justice yeah. system. So, um, well, so, this so, is exactly the point that I raise to people too: is that if you really want, if your interest is really in protecting the public, mm-hmm. then having a punitive, just send these quote unquote nutcases off to jail, that old stigmatizing uh, ancient view, it's actually riskier for the public. That's more likely to put the public in harm's way because then they're not getting the help that they need. That NCR uh, is the right approach, it seems. Uh, yes, uh, and and uh, and again, you, you're bringing up the point that that, um, that there is a small proportion. There's a proportion of people with mental illness who commit violent acts, sure. as there are of people who are not mentally ill. Right. That, the that, majority that, of that, violent that, acts that, are committed that, by people that, that do that. So it's yeah. so it's um, it, again, it's a complex conversation to have, and it's not one that you can say is you know this is the rule no, here and this is uh, this is uh, uh, this is the rule in another uh, situation. But by and large, this is a system that in Ontario works um, works very very well. When I moved from a general hospital to a, a psychiatric hospital uh, for my work, I brought with me a, a background uh, and an intentionality surrounding quality improvement. Mm. And uh, and so and so to me, uh, this this is this is something we do constantly. We're constantly mm-hmm. reviewing ourselves, our processes, our our program structure and function, and uh, finding ways to improve it. Mm-hmm. So so for us uh, internally, um, we've done reviews in the past of of uh, well any incident, any serious incident that occurs, mm-hmm. we review in a and on a small scale. If there appears to be a pattern, we do it on a bigger scale. And sure. in, in this incident, Instance, uh, we want to have external validation right. of the work that we're doing. So we've um, we've uh, uh, announced that some weeks ago now that we yeah. would be uh, undertaking uh, an external review to look at our processes, and not just look at the processes themselves, but how mm-hmm. well we're enacting them every single time. Right. And if there are issues in that process, sure, it should be addressed. But is there any Mm -hmm. concern? I would have concern as a mental health advocate that politics might interfere with clinical clinical care of individuals. If somebody has been found not criminally responsible by a court of law, by a justice system, then they're not criminally responsible. Therefore, they're people who Mm -hmm. deserve care Mm -hmm. Um, and whatever structure that care has been mandated to be. Uh, But if uh, somebody comes along without the clinical background, without the scientific background, and it determines uh, that something else should happen. Do you have any concerns that people's rights will be unfairly taken away, uh, for example, uh, in that kind of system because it's politically uh, unpopular to see people who have been found NCR escaping uh, from an institution? I think that's a risk. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's our job to uh, uh, to uh, to 
carry out um, the legal processes that mm-hmm. uh, that that bind us, and to also uh, continually balance the um, the safety of the public yeah. against the rights of our patients. That's right. that's something that we do every single day. We'll right. we'll continue to do that, and we'll continue to improve the processes through which we do that uh, to to build um, build confidence in yeah. that. So to broaden out from the justice system then, but to stay with this idea of um, involuntary treatment, this is something that people, even within mental health advocates, advocates advocate for. Uh, I've talked to many, many parents, for example, uh, who have suicidal kids uh, and who want their kids to be kept in hospital until they're able to keep themselves safe. Mm-hmm. I had somebody on the show previously, just last week, I believe, um, that who is a very strong opponent of involuntary admission in any respect. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, grew out of, you know, this isn't new. It came out of the anti psychiatry movement, the consumer psychiatric survivor, consumer survivor movement. Um, how do you balance that at CAMH between maintaining people's human rights while taking away some of those rights in, in some ways to, mm-hmm. to leave the hospital or to leave the ward uh, with their own recovery, with what's best for them, quote unquote? You know, how do you balance that tension? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, first of all, I just have to remind you, I'm not an expert. No, in, yeah, in, in and I should have actually said so, that. Up front. So, yeah. so I, so, so I, I will, I will tell you what I understand sure. to be uh, uh, the good and right things, to, th- things to do, and the things that I would uh, would promote right. and support in. Well, in, and I think it's fair that, that you do head up an organization, probably with yeah. more of those experts working <laughs> at it than anywhere else. Yeah, so. e- exactly. And and they're incredibly generous. Yes. Uh, and they've been very patient and, and and thoughtful in their education of me as yeah. as as the leader, but we we have to have to be respectful of the of the um, of the uh, mental health act. Sometimes when we talk about rights, we talk about them as being absolute, mm. and the truth is that they're always a balance. So in the situation that you're describing, we're talking about a balance between the right to refuse and the right to have care. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 uh, it, it's a clinical judgment that's made based on the uh, uh, the patient's condition, uh, the collateral information that's able to be uh, uh, be be accrued by the by the clinician, right. and uh, and there are um, there are appeals mechanisms in mm-hmm. place that uh, that that protect uh, individuals. Right. Uh, it, once again, is it perfect? I can't say it's perfect, but we strive for, for that, for all of those balances, the right to, to care versus the right to right. refuse. And if there might be something that's interfering with their right to care, if they're interfering with their own right to care, I guess, because of an altered state yes. of mind, for example. Yes. Yeah. That's an interesting way of thinking of it. I have actually never really thought of it quite that way before, but I think that's relevant in conversations, for example, around uh, medical assistance and dying. Mm-hmm. And if uh, mental illness as, an, as a soul factors should be uh, eligible for that. That's something that I've opposed, but that other mental health advocates have advocated for saying that people have the right to kill themselves if they want to. Uh, We're going to be releasing this on World Suicide Prevention Day. Uh, CAMH has taken, I think, a very measured uh, stance on medical assistance in dying, but can you talk to me more about that issue? Uh, once again, I'm not an expert, yes, but uh, and I and I, uh, I actually come from a a, a, a place of uh, um, religion and spirituality that uh, uh, persuades me to hold the uh, the the position that uh, uh, that it's not a, a correct mm-hmm. thing to do. But mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, I certainly respect the perspectives of uh, of, of others, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm really pleased that we have experts that are able to participate in this conversation in a mm-hmm. in a measured and a, in a meaningful way, and to try mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, to to get to the right uh, to, right. to to the right place. The large topic of suicide is is also um, difficult to talk about and 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 and, and fraught with um, uh, with personal perspectives and and, mm-hmm. and 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 beliefs. But what I worry about is when we talk about suicide prevention, we talk about it as the as the, uh, the actual the central uh, mm-hmm. thing to, uh, to to attack, and and uh, we we forget to talk about the idea that uh, that. That su- suicide uh, almost always, not always, but almost always, is carried out in the context of a mental illness. Right, it's a uh, symptom in many see, ways. It's a, it's an endpoint. Like, mm-hmm. let's say, death from cancer, right. and and so it usually occurs in the situation of depression or or psychosis. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, the approach to uh, to to suicide is is one we ha- where we have to do three things. One, we have to uh, educate ourselves better uh, to understand the um, predictors, mm-hmm. uh, the warning signs, uh, the tools that can be uh, to, to, to to improve the tools that uh, that that can predict who is at risk, and then mm-hmm. educate uh, uh, ind- individuals, not only providers but family members and the public of, of those risks. The second is access to care. Yes. So the the uh, the statistics are that I, I don't even remember what the statistics mm-hmm. are, but 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 not uh, by far any uh, anywhere near everybody who needs care has access to, right. for example, structured psychotherapy or uh, access to a specialist to monitor their uh, to their, their their medical care and their in, mm-hmm. and their supports. So so better access to care is the second one. So education, better access to care is the second one. And then third, at least uh, a third of people, for example, that suffer from depression uh, are not responsive to the usual medications right. and the usual treatment modalities. So we need research yeah. into better treatments that can um, that can prevent uh, cure. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's also important to remind people too that you know about a third do respond to, to yes. medication. About yes. a third respond to psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, you know, the best practice is to incorporate to wrap. Are, are all around, kinds yeah. uh, of services. Yeah. So for if 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 um, to me the 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 strategy is to implement those things right. towards uh, right. preventing mental illness or right. mitigating the impact of mental illness and and thus reducing right. the uh, the death. Well, this is it, and people. I, I think people still don't often realize that suicide doesn't come out of nowhere, however surprising it might seem. And people, um, especially people who are close to to people who have died by suicide, you know, often tell me that they didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't mean that there weren't signs, and it's it it's hard to avoid. I think the guilt. Uh, of why didn't I see this coming? I tell people all the time, how could you? No love, nobody would want to think of somebody that they love that much not being around anymore. So they block uh, it out, I think. Uh, or you don't see it, or yourself. You don't see it. I mean, I, 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 I've personally had that that experience, and and I, uh, this would be maybe thirty five years ago. I still go over it in my mind. Mm. Uh, the last time my colleague called me and. Uh, suggested that I come over and mm. have dinner and I I remember thinking being tired I had a small child I had, you know I I'm um, thinking I just can't do this I can't do this and, and putting it off putting it off and then 
why did I do that? How did I not know that she was calling for me? Right? Yeah. How did I not know that? I think that's uh, that's so true, and um, uh, and I think that's common. Have you come to peace with that? Uh, partially. Yeah. Partially, but it's still uh, it's still with me. I think that that's such a common experience mm-hmm. uh, for people. What what would you tell others who have been in a similar kind of circumstance who carry that kind of uh, memory with them? Uh, I have to think about that. Uh, I think I think you have to acknowledge it and acknowledge that you're not perfect and yeah. you have uh, uh, you have conditions of sure. your own life that uh, that sometimes prevent you from doing your best by everybody in the world. Well, and it's also, I mean, first of all, they're they're not alone. I mean, hearing from you proves mm-hmm. that. Um, but also that it's not their fault. I wish sometimes it would be nice if we can control everything that everybody else does when we're not around, uh, but that's just not the case, right? Actually, yeah, you're saying it out loud that it is a little bit grandiose to right. uh, to uh, to imagine that you that you are responsible, but but still, still it's hurtful, and you, yeah. and you know you know this was a valuable human being that uh, that brought you value, and they're yeah. gone. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that. Your own vulnerability uh, in sharing that story and and so many other parts of your own experience and being open to the experiences of others is why CAMH has come so far as it has and why it's been so uh, open. And while, yes, there are are things that still need to improve, um, we've seen dramatic changes to go down and look at that wall Mm -hmm. that was built by patients to keep themselves in uh, to now some of the new structures, the new architecture, the new the new programs that are being offered. It's uh, it's inspiring for me. Uh, even even now, having done this, having no other transferable skills, only ever done this for my entire still short life so far, uh, it's still inspiring for me to see the work happening in mental health now. So the inspiring thing for me is to have been given this gift towards the uh, end of my uh, career to uh, uh, to get to understand the people that we serve and mm. the uh, uh, the fact that I mentioned earlier to understand them as, as, as valuable human beings with rights, with human rights, with civil rights, with healthcare rights that we need to learn to respect better. And, uh, and equally important, it's been, uh, it's been so amazing to see our staff, uh, the dedication that they hold to, um, to, to the work that we do, even though it's difficult and uh, they sometimes feel unappreciated mm. by the uh, by by the system. But uh, uh, if I if I have I when I go to, when I have for example a long service tea, I go around and I I ask people why they stay, mm. why they've stayed for thirty years, twenty years, whatever. And the number one thing that they say is is because of the patients, because mm. I'm, I'm dedicated to my individual patients. The second is they say because of their team, and the third is the cause. Mm. So you've been there for almost 10 years now, Catherine. Why have you stayed? The patience, the team, <laughs> the cause. <laughs> Catherine Towns, thank you. thank you so much for coming in and, and talking with me today. Thank you. All right, there we go. There's my conversation with Catherine Zahn. Dr. Catherine Zahn is the CEO of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. Uh, I want to thank her for coming on the show for uh, to CAMH for making it so easy and for collaborating to get her to, to come in and speak about some really important issues. I'm interested in hearing what you thought about that, your perspectives on hospital treatment, your experiences. Uh, if you've had uh, treatment in hospital, either yourself or for your friends and family, uh, get in touch with me, share the episode and 
let me know your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever. I'm everywhere. Uh, you can find me at Mark Hennick most places. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. You can also head over to my website, markhennick.com. I would like to ask you a huge favor, as I do every single week, to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. If you scroll all the way to the bottom, you can leave us a rating as well, a star rating. You know, five stars would be nice, or four if you thought it was okay. One star if you really need to be honest, but I I don't want to encourage you to give me one star. So five stars, I love them. Uh, But whatever you think, I want want your honest feedback. And leave us a comment, too, in the bottom. Give us your thoughts about the show so far and suggestions for future guests that we should have. I I read them all. I love them. Uh, So please do that. Uh, You can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify. uh, Where else are we? We're everywhere. We're on every platform. Google, uh, Libs, and everywhere else. So uh, not hard to find so-called normal. Uh, Listen to all of our past episodes. We've got lots of them up there, all really in-depth conversations. Uh, I want to thank the folks that we have who make this show possible. Uh, Adrian, Kimberly here at Entertainment One, Dave, our uh, amazing editor who brings it all together. And thank you, of course, the listener, uh, for your your engagement with this, your support for the show. Uh, I really uh, look forward to having these conversations uh, every single week, every Monday. So I'll be back next Monday. Thanks, and I hope to see you then on So-Called Norma. Thank you.